0: This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. They can help you plan a fantastic vacation to any Disney destination. Email them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com and tell them that we sent you. Hello and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I'm still thinking about those gigantic screens showing
1: Michael Eisner's head (laughs) all over Westcott (laughs) that we stopped at last week. Yes, because it's a brilliant image and fits him perfectly. It's almost so, like, nightmare-inducing. Like, I can't get it out of my head. Gotcha, but well, I thought you liked that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, I do, but it's just so, so weird and bizarre, and yeah. But we should just jump into it this week, since we have yeah. a long episode. Let's do it.
0: It's time for dizzy History!
1: So like we just mentioned last week, we began our look at Westcott uh, by seeing where the Walt Disney Company was at the time of its inception and what things were going to be included in the park. And like we just said, we left off with a gigantic screen on the
0: Venture Port with the face of Michael Eisner looking out over the entire park. Now, the future world in Westcott would have been different from the one that we know in Epcot. As mentioned earlier, guests would be involved and actively participate in the action going on around them. The environments and attractions would be much more immersive, thereby allowing them uh, to almost literally get lost in the world they were visiting. The Wonders of Earth Pavilion would allow guests to walk through exotic locations that they would probably never actually visit. They'd travel through a dense jungle and get lost in the rainforest. They would wander the desert, exploring the sandy wastelands and oases, and they'd swim underwater, living the life of a sea creature, and they'd freeze their butts off in the Arctic. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, the Wonder of Limp- the Wonders of Living Pavilion would be pretty familiar to people who had visited Epcot Center. Uh, of course, it would center on the human mind and the body, and it would feature some updated versions of attractions that we all know and love, such as Body Wars, um, Cranium Command, The Making of Me, and a unique brand new version of Journey into Imagination. And then there was the Wonders of Space Pavilion, and that would take you on a journey through the cosmos, and would feature an attraction based on Charles and Ray Ohm's Power of Ten films. And uh, John Horny, uh, Imagineer extraordinaire, came up with this concept called Deck 13, and it was going to be sort of like a Tower of Terror, but in outer space. Ooh.
0: So we're going to take you through the ride for a few moments here, because it's fascinating. The story was that you are working on a space station as crew members. You start off strapped in your vehicle to perform some routine maintenance, but the lights begin to flash. The universal sign that something is about to go wrong. Whoa, the lights flashed here. Oh, see? Oh, crap. Okay. Uh, Anyway, so you are brought past crew members in suspended animation, cryogenically sleeping, when you notice something is off about them. Though asleep, asleep, (laughs) they have been ripped to pieces. ...and are now dead. Some would say, the big sleep, if you will, Ooh. for that. So,
1: before you know it, you are whisked up into a black hole of sorts... ...outside into the vacuum of space. And using a large dome screen in front of you... ...and the movement of your vehicle, it would simulate the feeling of floating in space. But then, in the darkness in front of you... ...you would begin to see this figure emerge from deep space. And it winds up being another astronaut floating in space idly. But as he gets closer... You begin to see that, you see that he's not one of your team anymore, because he's actually dead. And he's coming right for you! So his hand would reach out and try to grab you, but at the last moment, you were whisked backward. Because someone from your crew on the inside of the ship still turned on the tractor beam and brings you back in. And within the relative safety of the space station again, you breathe a sigh of relief, until the deadly astronaut
0: is back in front of your face, reaching for you. And asking you, who turned out the lights? Exactly. Who turned out the lights? Okay, so just as he's about to grab you, there's a bang, there's a clang, and then whoosh, down you fall into the bowels of the ship, out of harm's way. You freefall, spinning 180 degrees down in the darkness. You whiz past a quick pocket of light, which is actually a waiting area where other guests can watch you fall down and then plunge back into the darkness again. You then begin to move backward, faster on a track, and whoosh! Over your head, he appears again, making one final attempt to grab you. When you escape, you are brought back to an offloading area where you get out of your vehicle, and away you go. It would have been similar in tone to the extraterrestrial alien encounter at the Magic Kingdom. Not for kids. But sounds way awesome. Yeah, it does.
1: Right? So uh, John also designed a kid's play area based on Mars uh, with significantly less scary things in it. Uh, But showing (laughs) off some scientific information on the red planet and how scientists plan to terraform it in the future. And there was also a gigantic special effects show based in a theater that told the history of the universe uh, from the Big Bang all the way to present day.
0: So moving out of the Future World area, let's head over to the Four Corners of the World. Now, unlike Epcot, which focuses on individual countries, the Four Corners of the World would represent regions. This would not only allow the Imagineers to blend a variety of influences uh, to make a more powerful emotional impact when people enter these areas, but it would also simplify the struggle to get international sponsors. You know how some of the World Showcase countries haven't been updated in a while? Well, this would eliminate that problem.
1: So the first stop would be the New World, or as we like to call it, the Americas. So at one point in time, the entrance would have been similar to Disneyland's Main Street, to kind of create a similar feeling of uh, when entering the area. But uh, instead of Main Street, it would have been modeled after more of New York City or Philadelphia of 100 years ago. Uh, but then the idea evolved into representing the Americas before it was made into what we made it today. So it would include rainforest, uh, jungles, and everything before man
0: came in and took over. So the Westcott version of the land pavilion would have featured something very similar to what living with the land is today. But the best part is that there would have been no Sorin. As an extension to the pavilion, there would have been a big glass pyramid that would have housed a tropical rainforest. It would have been part of the main attraction of the pavilion, but also included restaurants, shops, and a great vantage point for the rest of the park. Which leads us to what's right outside of it, which was a scale representation of the Grand Canyon. This would have been the closest you could get to the Grand Canyon without actually being there. An updated version of the American Adventure would be the centerpiece attraction in this area as well. So just outside the Grand Canyon would have been the
1: entrance to the subterranean world. Here you would travel beneath the Earth's surface to learn all about what lurks below. And you'll learn all about how the Earth itself was formed, what goes on every day. You'll know, learn about rocks, but don't take it for granite.. Ooh. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was also talk of having a ride similar to a uh, journey to the center of the Earth, like they have at Tokyo
0: Disney, set, uh, Tokyo Disney Sea as well there was uh, also a runaway bobsled ride with a ski lift that would bring you to the top of the mountain before you plunge down. This area would also represent Canada with some totem poles to represent uh, the northwest of the country along with the Spirit Lodge. A child's play area themed to the North Pole would also be in this area. And if you took the Autopia cars to the Americas, this is also just about where they would let you off. You'd see the Jazz Hall, the Mount Shasta Mystery Tunnel, and our personal favorite, Señor Toros Tijuana Taxi. I don't know what it would have been, but I would have loved it based on the name alone. I wonder if there's any similar it. to Roger Rabbit's. Maybe. Who knows?
1: Maybe. Who knows? Okay. So, moving toward the middle of the map, we'd be in South America. So, it is here that you'd be surrounded by all the beauty of the land and experience shows about the Incas and the Aztecs to learn about their culture. And there'd also be a village market with shops and restaurants
0: our next stop would be Europa, or sometimes referred to as uh, the Old World. It would have had a few different feels to it. Part of this area would combine high-tech shows and proven attractions. The popular Circle Vision film, The Timekeeper, would have found a permanent home here after bo- being booted from all the other parks. The proposed Russian pavilion for Epcot that was never built, well, that would have gone here too, along with a show exploring its culture. A Greek amphitheater would provide additional entertainment and John Stamos's yogurt and the kids would have had fun in the Tivoli Gardens playground. A James Bond style chase aboard the Trans-European Express Railroad featuring famous European buildings zooming past outside the window would be the must-do attraction.
1: But the other part of it would have evoked the old, old world feeling of Europe. Uh, that first half would have been very modern, but the rest, as described by John Horney, would have been a labyrinth of sorts. They actually wanted you to get lost within its walls and to actually feel like you were in ancient times. You know, following a string to find your way through the labyrinth and through the story of that section of the world, kind of like uh, Morocco is at uh, Epcot right Ooh. now. Uh, So this section would have the most common in Epcot, too. It would actually transition from country to country very clearly. But a lot of countries were represented here with some sort of attraction for each. And uh, Paris would even have catacombs for the kids to play in. I mean, nothing says kids fun like playing with skulls, right? Fun, fun, fun. Yes, uh, until daddy (laughs)
0: took the skull away. (laughs) Ooh, that was good. Each country was not really in a linear fashion here. Uh, They were more of a, this is the best time period for this country, so let's go with that. But right smack in the center was a big cathedral dome, uh, which was common in European cities. They would also be where uh, the boats that would have gone all around the park would have been. Think of them like the train at Disneyland mixed with pirates, in a way. Uh, We'll come back to them later, but just remember that.
1: So when you first entered this section, though, you'd come to Pax Romana, uh, which was Rome at its apex. Uh, And then you'd travel into the Fall Room, and into the Dark Ages, filled with witchcraft and spells and rituals and so on, probably human sacrifice, whatever, no big deal. Um, But then you'd move on to the time of the knights and kings, and then part of this area would have had buildings alluding to different pieces of a chess set as well. Uh, and then on to the Renaissance, uh, King uh, King Louis and ending in the modern-ish Europe, uh, the, the section that uh, George was discussing earlier, but totally escaping all the bad parts of European history, because this is a theme park, after all. Gee, no Black
0: Plague ride?
1: No Black Plague, uh, no uh, French Revolution, none of
0: that stuff. Or the Spanish Inquisition, because nobody expects nobody that. Nobody expects it. Exactly. So, uh, moving along to the next of the four corners, in the world of Africa, you could take a raft ride down the fictional... Kagabezi River, listen to African drummers, wander through a farming culture exhibit, or an Egyptian palace. It was around this time that Tony Baxter came up with an idea to have a hotel built directly into the park. It changed the landscape of this area quite a bit, as the hotel would have been situated right behind the pyramids. So one of the shows they planned to have
1: in this section was Three Great Religions of the World. So at the time, uh, Michael Eisner said something like, uh, I want you to do a show that everyone will enjoy and will, perfectly, uh, will find perfectly in concert with their particular religion. Obviously that's practically impossible, especially today. So Imagineers instead created a show that depicted uh, the seven days of creation and avoiding all of the problems between uh, the Muslim and the Jewish and the Christian variations of that.
0: Wow, so the Storyteller Tree was where they would tell stories of African history, along with the Tishman African Art Exhibit, the world's largest African art exhibit. This would have been the permanent home for that show. And then finally, we have the world of Asia. This is where the big e-ticket thrill ride would have uh, called home. Ride the Dragon, as it was called, would have been a roller coaster that followed along the Great Wall of China into the Dragon's Teeth Mountain. The trains would be designed to look like Chinese uh, lion dragon that you often see in parades. And at its crest, the roller coaster would feature red and gold silks that would obscure the view outside the park. Architectural details from Japan, China, and India would have blended together to create a memorable environment and one heck of a ride. So one of the things you may have noticed that we said
1: that there is specifically something for kids in every area of the Four Corners. So one of the problems they had with Epcot was that there wasn't a lot for kids to do. I mean, sure, they can learn, but what kid wants to learn when there are cool attractions to go on? So, adding these kid areas and elements would have made
0: it easier for kids to handle and open up to the learning aspect of the Four Corners. So, let's take a step back and talk about that boat ride that we mentioned in the Old World slash Europe section. Westcott would have been home to the longest attraction in Disney history with this boat ride called the River of Time. It would have connected the four corners of the world and Future World. The entire loop would take 45 minutes if you stayed on it from beginning to end, and you could have loaded it at any one of the five areas or points. The trip would take about nine minutes between each stop. Between stations, you would experience scenes similar to those at Epcot Center's Spaceship Earth, but each would have been related to the land you were flowing through. The scenes would tell the story of the cultures of each pavilion and the evolution of world civilization. For instance, if you were leaving Asia and going into Europe, you would see the forming of Ancient Greece and Rome, and the burning of Rome, and then the resurgence and the Renaissance. After Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel, as he does in Spaceship
1: Earth, you would emerge from that building and then find yourself in the Renaissance area of Italy. And of course, you'd be welcome to step out and enter the experience, amidst all the entertainment, shops, and restaurants. All in all, Westcott seems like it could have been a massive home run for the company. It was projected that all of this activity would have attracted 25 million visitors a year by 1998.
0: Westcott Center would have drawn more than 10 million on its own. So what happened? Well, come back next week as we explore that question and see what caused the downfall of Westcott. He's a nerd, he's a, nerd. He's, a he's a geek,
1: but we all like to hear him speak, so listen up to the words from his speech, ah! it's George's
0: Book of the Week. So someone has finally published the book that everyone has been thinking about writing in forever, and we're talking about the recently released Drinking at Disney by Drunkie, seriously that's the name on the book, and Rhiannon. It's a guidebook from Bamboo Forest Publishing that covers every single drinking location at Walt Disney World. It includes full bar menus, as well as tips and tricks for your visit. So, the first impression that I got when this book
1: arrived was, number one, wow, they drank a lot. (laughs) The second impression was how gorgeous the book was. I mean, seriously, for a book about drinking, it has this really cool whimsical design that actually perfectly suits the style of the book itself. Its entire layout is, like, really
0: nice and wonderful to look at, And it stands out as a really good-looking book about getting drunk. Yeah, so Shannon Lasky, who did the really amazing go-to guide for Disneyland, handled the artwork and layout for the book, which I think is, you know, one of its strengths. It truly is incredible, the book. Uh, Still, the reason to grab this new title is simply to have an amazing resource for enjoying libations at Walt Disney World. And it's an astounding reference guide. It's funny, charming, slightly sadistic and quite sardonic uh drunky and rhiannon are uh, are more hosts than writers and it shows and by the first few pages of the book you understand that you're in for a real treat especially with the running gags
1: it's it's interesting to me how easily their back and forth translates onto the page uh, and you know with one of them interrupting the other with their comments oh really yeah yeah go figure right hmm (laughs) So it's extremely well done on a show, and it's never jarring, but it's, like, really hilarious all the time. And I know we've talked about the layout and the author, so let's, let's talk about the meat of the book a little bit. It's good. It's really good. I mean, there's never been a more complete guide to drinking around Walt Disney World before, and one done in such a way that's not a chore to read, so this one is absolutely worth every single page.
0: Yeah, so Drinking at Disney has 11 chapters. That includes The Bar... (laughs) <laughs> the Magic Kingdom, the one place to drink. Uh, everything at Epcot, the, uh, the few at Disney's Hollywood Studios, the Animal Kingdom, all the water parks, everything at Disney Springs, all the hotels, and the pool bars as well. And there are quite a few drinking plans included. And there are actually 111 bar reviews, which is slightly less than the number of books that we've reviewed on this show. So they, they must know what they're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah. The book is also
1: uh, populated with hilarious lists like uh, the best bars to have an affair at or the best bars for a breakup and so on like that. And I mean, yeah, they're played for tongue in cheek comedic value, but they actually are quite well researched and, you know, on the money for what you may be looking for. Just don't blame them if something goes wrong either way. Yeah,
0: and there are photos for each of the bars as well, Uh, and they also include hashtag drunkies which would sort of be selfies of them with a bottle in front of their face. And, you know, if I only have one complaint, it's I'd rather see more photos of the bars and less of them. Just because it's just a drink in front of their face. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, it's not a big complaint either, since there really is not much to complain about with this book at all. There are so many great aspects of the book that I'm hard-pressed to pick out a favorite, except that the sense of humor and the writing is wonderful.
1: I mean, seriously, for people like us, this book has been a long time coming, and I think Drunkie and Rhiannon did a masterful job of doing it. Um, there was a lot of drinking and slash or uh, research that went into the <laughs> making of the book, and I commend one for to commend them for taking one for the team and traveling to every single bar across Walt Disney World in order for us to enjoy it. And I'm sure it was hard work, but somebody has to do it.
0: Yeah, and this book. Isn't just for the people who want to do nothing but drink on their Disney vacation. The book offers something uh, for everyone, especially people that might be just you know looking out for looking for a fun night out, or just want to try a different type of bar or a drink that they may never experience You know while they're at Walt Disney World. But I mean, really, it's mostly for drinkers because you know it is drinking. It is. Yeah. But yeah. I think we both uh, love the book and highly recommend it. It is Drinking at Disney by Drunky and Rhiannon. Sometimes it's a one! Sometimes it's a two! When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a
1: bathroom break. A bathroom break. So we usually get a lot of listener submissions on the show, but this one was by far the most in-depth. So Rick Webster, who is a longtime cadet, uh, he sent in this bathroom the best bathroom break really that we've ever gotten. And it's basically its own history segment. So we're just going to read
0: some of it here for you guys. So so Rick writes, and I quote, I strolled along Hollywood Boulevard taking in the sights as I passed the ABC Soap Opera Bistro, now Playhouse Disney. I couldn't believe my eyes. There before me stood a new and distinctive, yet very familiar structure, composed of concrete textile blocks, beveled corner windows, a cantilevered roof, a symmetrical pedestal urns overflowing with greenery. Uh, And I know these architectural elements well. Disney Imagineers had created an homage in the style of my favorite architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. I was thrilled that a lowly restroom would be afforded this level of detail tied to an individual architect In a Disney park, end quote. So, yeah, so just as a sidebar really
1: quick, the bathroom he's talking about is in Disney's California Adventure. Uh, Now it's technically part of Buena Vista Street, but it's right next to uh, Playhouse Disney. Uh, And you really can't miss it. It's a pretty big bathroom right there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, Rick goes on, to put things in perspective, let's take a look at the timeline for the Golden Age. Walt Disney arrived in Los Angeles in 1923. Then in 1924, MGM Studios and the Charlie Chaplin Studios, now Muppet Studios, opened. In 1925, Walt built Hyperion Studios, and in 1926,
0: the Spanish Colonial Revival-style Carthay Circle Theater opened. Okay, so Rick again. Also during this time frame, Frank Lloyd Wright was one of the most renowned and prolific architects of the 20th century, with such disciples as John Lautner, Jim DeLong, Paolo Solari, and E. Faye Jones. And as the father of organic architecture, Wright created iconic structures, like Falling Water in Pennsylvania in 1938, that stand today as a testament to his amazing prowess and creativity. Wright had three golden ages of his own, the second of which coincided with Hollywood's golden age. And during his, quote, California period, Wright was an architectural force to be reckoned with as he developed his legendary concrete block style, creating one signature textile block pattern for each residence he designed. So, following the construction of the Hollyhock House uh, in
1: Los Angeles in 1921, and the Imperial Hotel in Japan in 1923, Wright focused on four residences for his concrete block construction during the period of 1923-1924, including the the Millard House in La Miniatura uh, in Pasadena, and then the Freeman, Storer, and Ennis Houses in Hollywood. And it should be noted that the textile block pattern the Imagineers created for the DCA restroom appears to be a hybrid of the Millard
0: and Storer textile patterns of of these four magnificent refer- magnificent residences only the Ennis House holds a prominent place not only in the architectural history but also in cinematic history due to its exotic Mayan revival architecture the Ennis House become became a go-to location for numerous Hollywood filmmakers starting as early as 1933 the house was featured in the film House on Haunted Hill in 59 The Day of the Locust in 1975, Blade Runner in 1982, and even in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Twin Peaks television series. Key areas of the Ennis house have appeared or been recreated for film and television series including The Karate Kid 3, Predator 2, and Star Trek The Next Generation. The house has also been used as a location for commercials, fashion magazine shoots, and music videos. Disney itself recreated sections of the Ennis House in detail, including the patterned art glass for the Rocketeer. Wright's textile block architecture
1: holds a very special place in Cadet Rick's heart for two key reasons. First, he's obviously a huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright and all of his work. And second, he personally assisted with the restoration and rehabilitation of the Ennis House when it was red-tagged as structurally unsound following the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and battered relentlessly by the violent rainstorms that followed. So, Rick submits to Wright's a richly textured, ornamental, textile block designs, and he says they're an integral part of the architectural and cultural fabric of Los Angeles. His creations
0: are treasure jewels from Hollywood's golden age and cinematic history. And Rick thinks that Disney should be applauded for creating this beautiful and unique restroom in Hollywoodland at Disney California Adventure, simply because it has the right stuff. So, as
1: we said, this is a pretty in-depth look at the bathroom, considering the outside looks gorgeous and the actual restroom itself is just, you know, it's it's okay. And it's not even flushing on their own terms, so, I mean... It's better, better on the outside, really. But a big thanks to Cadet Rick for writing this up and really re- researching this amazing bathroom.
0: Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> in
1: 1932, the silly symphony short Flowers and Trees made history as the first animated film produced in color. So, what does that have to do with Disney's Wilderness Lodge? Well, if you head over to the Sturdy Branches Health Club, where you can work out and pump some iron, uh, you'll have to pay close attention to the doors leading into it. The windows on the doors themselves have outlines of the trees from the short, and they're all lifting weights and showing off their muscles, so it's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a strange sure. thing. I, I thought you were going to go with the Wilderness Lodge it was the first Disney resort in color. Uh, I mean, it could be. It could be. Maybe. It's, That's probably a lie, though. That's definitely is. a lie. It should be a lie. But, but what, what's not a lie is that we are still giving away a prize every week in our Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets Weekly Prize Giveaway. Okay. Da, I'll da, take da, that da, one. Da. Yeah, sort of there. So for those of you who aren't familiar with it, every week we're giving out a prize. And uh, all you have to do is email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name and address so we can mail that prize to you. We still have a handful of weeks left to get your own, get your name entered into the drawing. We're getting there, kids. We're almost done. Okay, so this week's winner, who's going to win a wonderful Fairy Godmother Travel prize package from Teresa Corey, the winner is Marty C. from DeBerry, Florida. Yay, Yay! Hooray, Marty! Congratulations, yes. sir. So, Marty, don't forget to send us a photo of yourself, whether you email it to us or put it on Twitter or Facebook. We would love to see you enjoying the wonderful prize that Fairy Godmother Travel sent you. Yes, please do. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of CommuniCore Weekly. However you get the show, whether you watch
1: on YouTube, leave us a comment, or if on iTunes, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think.
0: Yep, and email us at CommuniCoreWeekly at gmail.com. And you can also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Weekly. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Periscope. I'm at Imagine Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And you can always call us on the CommuniCorps Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And make sure you visit the CommuniStore at CommuniCorpsWeekly.com where you can get some great CommuniCorps Weekly merch. And there's only a couple of weeks left to get your official cadet membership card uh,
1: and stickers. Just send a self-addressed stamped envelope to CommuniCore Weekly, P.O. Box 432,
0: Orange, California, 92856. And make sure you visit Patreon.com slash CommuniCore Weekly to see how you two can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbach, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbach. Thanks so
1: much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show.